This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And uh, we're working our way, if you're new here, we're working our way through this book. You haven't missed a lot. We're just in the third chapter. Uh, But here's one of the things we're finding uh, about this book is that we are finding that it's really a very philosophical book. It's a book where um, it's not like a list of things to do or something like that. It's more a description of how to think about life. And the author, uh, his name is Ecclesiastes, or the preacher, he calls himself the preacher in here. Uh, The author is uh, communicating certain things about life from two perspectives. One is under the sun. He uses that phrase a lot. This is what life is like under the sun. What does he mean? He means what is life like without a view towards God? What is life like without a belief in God? What is life like as if there is no God? And he's describing that kind of a life. And then he at various points makes, uh, describes life with reference to God as well. So this is what he's doing. In the last few weeks, really the last two weeks, we've been talking about the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. Now that's a phrase that Christians kind of toss out. It's kind of theological sounding, but here's what the sovereignty of God means. It means that God rules, that God not only creates all that exists, that's God as the creator, but God is the sovereign is that he rules over all that happens. Sovereign, a sovereign is a king. But this king isn't just king over a nation. He's king over everything that exists, and he controls all that exists. So when we say God is sovereign, we mean God controls all. Now, the Bible also teaches that people have their own free will. They make their own choices. So that's a truth as well. But God ultimately oversees everything. Man is free. God is free. God is just more free, as might be one way we would talk about that. Um, But that is what we've been talking about, the sovereignty and the rulership of God. And it's a great doctrine that sustains us, but it is a doctrine that we must believe by faith. And I mean by faith, because when life is difficult, when tragedy strikes, when we suffer, then God is still sovereign in those times too. He's sovereign over all. And this is a grounding truth that enables us to live our lives, live life, what we're going to see today, in a chaotic world. A, a grounding truth that helps us live is this, this truth. God rules and is in control over all. Two weeks ago, we read this poem in uh, chapter 3, a very familiar one. You know, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, goes on a time to weep, a time to laugh. And the point was that in all the seasons of life, whatever our experiences are, God rules over those experiences. After the after the poem, it said this uh, in verse 14 of chapter 3, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So what he's saying is that God, everything that happens, ultimately God rules over and is in control of. Last week, we had a guest preacher, and Pastor Carlos taught us from the book of Joel. And he described how God rules over even 
tragic situations. And he described his city where he pastors and their experience in Juarez, Mexico, and all that they've experienced with the drug cartels um, and the violence that has come there and how they have a church as a church in a city with great violence um, have learned to trust God more. And there's unanswered questions about why is God permitting these things to happen, but they've been rooted, he said, freshly in God is our trust. God is our refuge. We run to him and he is ultimately in control. Well, today's text is in the same vein And all of this about God being in control is going to help us understand what he's talking about here. And as we read this text that we're about to read, it is not an easy text. Uh, Let me just say that, give a little bit of a warning going into it. I uh, put on the city this week on the Sunday sermon group, I mentioned, I asked everybody this Sunday to bring their floaties because we were going to be in the deep end of the pool for the whole sermon. So after I start reading this, you can inflate your floaties at any time because you won't be able to tread water for the length of this sermon, I don't think. And uh, we are clearly in the deep end of the pool. So we're going to read this and then I'm going to ask for God's help for us to understand and apply it. Verse 16 of Ecclesiastes 3. I'm going to read the whole end of the chapter and into the beginning of chapter 4. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Let's pray. Lord, we humble ourselves before your word today and we ask that you'd speak to us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to understand your message in this text. We pray that we would see you more clearly, Lord. We want to know you better And we want to understand you more. And so we want to ask that you would help us to understand you more. Lord, show us the glory of Christ today and all that he has done for us in the gospel. So we pray, Lord, that we would, this text would have its effect on our lives. That we might, um, that we might trust you as the one who rules over all and who will judge over all. Grant us grace, we pray here in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage, we can kind of break it up into two sections. I'm going to spend most of the time, almost all the time on the first section, be very brief in the second. But we can kind of see it divided up in two things, and it's divided up by what he saw under the sun. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun, that's from a human perspective, without reference to God, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, 
even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So he saw instead of justice, there was wickedness. What's the point? What he's saying is that injustice is under the sun. When he looked, he saw injustice under the sun. We're all trained, or actually not trained, it just comes very natural to us that we are opposed to injustice. We're opposed to injustice. And uh, he's observing this injustice. You know, if you have two little kids who are fighting over a toy, I'm sure it's never happened in your house, but it did in ours because uh, we had kids that were sinners and parents that were sinners as well and still are. But uh, if there's two kids battling over a toy and you come in and you just have to make a call, somebody's got to call balls and strikes. And so if you just say, okay, Billy, I want you to give the, the toy to, to Joey. Uh, what, what does Billy say? Billy says, that's not fair. Right? Have you heard this? That's not fair. I had it first. And Billy, at a very young age, is railing against the injustice of said toy being removed unrighteously from his hand and given to the other kid. Or, you know, if you've been following the NBA playoffs at all, um, at, there's been a few games where the refs have gotten more storyline and commentary than the players afterwards because there's accusations of bad calls. And you'll see a coach just leap up in anger, just yelling at the ref, how could you not see this? How could you call that? The, the, the same coach who was silent when there was a bad call made on the other team, incidentally, who was not incensed by the injustice of that call, is incensed by this one. And, and fans can join in as well. So we can all react to trivial injustices. A toy and, uh, and sports just aren't nearly as serious as we make them to be. So it's just a game. A toy and a game is a small thing. But what Ecclesiastes has his eye on is an injustice that's much greater. We react to those kind of injustices, and we also react to this kind of injustice. Look what he's talking about. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, there was wickedness. And then he repeats it again. And in the place of righteousness, he's talking about a place. In the place of justice, he's talking about a locale, literally. What is the place of justice? Well, likely what he's speaking about is the court system. That is the place, the court, where judges reign and rule, lowercase j, judges, not God directly, but judges where they reign. That is a place where there is supposed to be justice. Have you ever seen the image of Lady Justice? She's the goddess of justice. And uh, she holds a balance and she holds scales in her hand. You've probably seen the statue, and the scales are equal. There's nothing weighing them unequal. They're equal, and here's the real thing. She has a blindfold around her eyes that the justice that Lady Justice supposedly administers is evenly balanced and fair, and it, it doesn't take into account the person. It's just the matter that is judged fairly. And so when he coalesced the, the preacher, Ecclesiastes, when he looks and he says, he says in the place of justice, what he sees is wickedness. There's warnings about this in the book of Proverbs. And this is the way a lot of people live and have lived in our planet with this kind of injustice. He's talking about judges who take bribes, someone who can be bought off to render a certain verdict. He's talking about situations where liars are given credibility with their testimony, maybe even known liars, fabricate a story 
and it's believed as credible evidence. Or favoritism. A judge or a jury shows favoritism to someone because of their race or because of their status or because they're connected somehow to power or to the judge himself. It's a wicked mess when there is injustice in a place where there is supposed to be justice. And when we merely think of life under the sun, as he's talking about, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, there's wickedness. When we see wickedness where there is supposed to be, where there is a hope for and an expectation of fairness, there is a sense of outrage that can come from us. An exp- a, a sense of outrage that this is maddening. This is wrong. That there's a lack of morality to that. And it can cause us, can cause us to despair sometimes. Because there's, there's no righteous um, penalty for the guilty. There's, uh, there's no consequences for those in authority who judge unfairly those who aren't. It can actually tempt us to outrageous behavior. That is, behavior that is animated by a spirit of outrage. I just realized this, actually just yesterday I realized that uh, last month was the 20-year anniversary. So some of you aren't even 20. You won't even know what I'm talking about. But was the 20-year anniversary of what was called the L.A. riots or the Rodney King riots. That was, if, if you're old like me, that was 20 years ago. And the reason that stands out in my mind is because I was there. My wife and I were there. We had two little kids at the time. And uh, we didn't live in L.A., but we lived in Pasadena, which is just north, a little bit north of L.A., And we saw a city erupt in outrage over injustice. Here's what happened. There was a guy named Rodney King. Um, He happened to be African-American, which is important for the purpose of this story. And he was eluding the police, and they finally caught up. I don't remember how that all happened, but they caught up to him. And he initially resisted arrest, and they subdued him forcefully. But they used excessive force in subduing him. What happened is while they were subduing him, there was a guy across the street in an apartment complex that had his video camera running. And he shot a video of Rodney King being beaten. I forget the exact number. I think it was 50 somehow, uh, you know, uh, strikes with uh, batons. And they tased him and kicked him and all kinds of stuff uh, to subdue him. And uh, so this guy took the video to the police, and they didn't want it. So he took it to a television station who broadcast it, and then it caught on, and everybody in the world saw this man being beaten. He was tried, and I mean, not he wasn't tried. The, the, those who uh, subdued him were tried on the excessive force that they used as authorities, police. And uh, they were found, three of them were found um, uh, not guilty. Even, even though it was on video, they found not guilty. Now, three of them were, uh, were white. One of them, I think, was Hispanic. One of them, I don't think they reached a, a verdict on. And because of the injustice of the verdict, people erupted. And the reason I call it unjust is because two of the guys were later tried in federal court and found guilty. So that's my opinion. Someone else found them guilty for what they did later. And the city went crazy. There was such an outrage at, the, uh, at, the, at what was happening that... Things went chaotic, and people began to riot. And in a period of a few days, the National Guard was immediately called in. In the period of a few days, 53 people were killed in the riots. Ten people were shot by police or by, um, by National Guardsmen and killed 
in the riots. 2,000 people were injured. Get this figure. This happened in just a few days in the L.A. area. 3,600 buildings were set fire, were set on fire. And I have this vivid memory of my wife and I on our front porch looking about three blocks down the road to a building that was on fire, that had been set on fire during the riots. It was a fearful time. 1,100 buildings were destroyed in a few days. And it was the closest thing I've ever experienced to what Carlos talked about last week when there's no authority and there's no the the powers that be are are vacant and people are running wild in the streets. There's many opportunists that stole and looted. Uh, They didn't have moral outrage over the crime. They probably just thought free stuff. And so they went and took stuff. So there's plenty of that as well. But there was a sense of a moral outrage because of what happened. And that is a response that we can have when we see someone is not treated justly for whatever reason. Um, and is, is not treated fairly and doesn't, there's not a, a just rendering uh, from a justice system where we've come to expect fairness and equity. So how does Ecclesiastes respond when he sees that? What does he say? Does he say start a riot? He doesn't say that. Um, he doesn't even say in this case start a campaign, wear a button, sell a product in a certain way and have the proceeds go over. He, he doesn't start any of that. What he says here is to think about God. He says, stop thinking under the sun and look above the sun and realize God will judge. Look what he says, verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now, I'm not going to preach a message from another text. There are other texts in the Bible that very much call us as Christians to take the side of those who are being mistreated when there's injustice. We are to protect those who can't protect themselves. We're to defend those who are treated wrongly. We're to be a voice for those who have no voice. We're to take a stand and to do what we can to, under the sun, remedy through prayer and through action to remedy injustices and to promote justice. So Christians are called to do that. But those are in other parts of the scripture. In this text, what Ecclesiastes says is when there is injustice that we are to trust God. He says that there is a time for every matter. That's what he said in chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So what he says is there's a time for everything and there's coming a time when God will judge. When God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And so the, the claim that this text makes on our lives is that we are to trust the sovereign God of the universe, that he will sort everything out, that all injustices will be made right, that all guilty will be sentenced and punished for their actions, that there is coming a day of judgment. There's no way this side of the return of Christ, this side of heaven, that injustice will be done away with. That's not to minimize any of our efforts to eradicate it, but it's just not going to be done away with as long as there are sinners and and in legal injustices, as long as sinners are evaluating sinners, there will be bias, sinful discrimination, unfairness. That will happen in the system, in all systems. That will happen to some degree. But one day, the promise is that will happen no more because there will be a throne of judgment that all will stand before, before God. And before that throne, there will be absolute 
fairness. Those who oppressed, those who, um, who took the advantage of the power that was delegated them, legal power and legal authority, whether f- folks want to recognize that or not, is delegated to them by God. Judges are under the authority of God. Uh, all civil authorities, the, the armies of the world, the, the military forces are under, they're delegated from God. Police force delegated from God. And so all those who were delegated authority, whether they knew that or recognized it or not, will give an account to God for the way they use that authority to judge other people. That day we will all stand before God and there will be no forgetting. There'll be no testimony where I don't remember how that happened. God remembers everything perfectly. There will be no procedural technicalities where everybody knew the guy was guilty, but, well, procedurally, based on a technicality, a really smart lawyer got him off, got him off of uh, a sentence and off of guilt, and he, he was free because of a technicality. There will be no technicalities when we stand before God. There will be no hung jury where, well, they deliberated, but they weren't sure. There will be no inadmissible evidence, all evidence. He says that judge the wicked and the righteous for every matter and for every work. So there will be, all evidence will be known, all evidence will be admitted before God. There's coming a day when everyone will give an account, and this is what Ecclesiastes says. He sticks his eyes up and looks above the sun and says, under the sun there's injustice that is maddening ultimately, that we're going to see in a minute is he's almost despairing over it. It's despairing, but there's coming a day when God will set everything right and will judge fairly. And we can put our head on the pillow at night, trusting that God is sovereign and there's coming a day that will not be like today. And many of us don't feel this ache because we're not subject to injustice. We don't experience this on a daily basis, many of us. Some of us do, but, but most of us don't experience regular injustice and Almost all of us have not experienced injustice in a courtroom. And so we don't feel this ache the way someone comes before an authority with all power and they just say, kill him. Just capriciously make a decision like that. We can't even relate to that. But there's coming a day where that will be no more. There is a future uh, justice, an eternal justice. And without that, really, the world doesn't make sense. If we don't have a sense, some people say, well, I don't really like to think of God as a judge. Then if you don't like to think of a God as a judge who will make everything right and bring justice someday, then the, the, what you're left with is to a, a world that is morally um, imbalanced, a world that is really chaotic. If there's no justice, if everything doesn't work itself out rightly in the end, then we live in a meaningless universe. We live in a meaningless world. There's no hope. You might as well despair because there is no hope if it doesn't work out justly in the end. Now, this is not just a warning for corrupt judges and leaders, but it's a warning for all of us. I'm going to, this is a spoiler alert. I'm going to read the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. These are the last two verses of the book. This is how he's going to finish the whole book. And this idea of justice is still with him. Look what he says, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 to 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Here's the last sentence of the book. For God will bring every deed into judgment 
with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is where he ends. After he looks at all of life and evaluates all of life, he says, here's, here's my parting words to you. God is holy and great and majestic and he rules. Fear him, have a, an awe, a reverence for him. Recognize his glory and his majesty and realize that one day he will bring everything to the light and he will make a judgment. Now that brings peace when we think about all the injustice in this world. It brings peace when we think about justice that will um, be foundational and final in the new heavens and the new earth. So there's something very good about that, but there's something that's a real warning about that too, is it not? Sometimes we, when we present the good news to people, we, we, we sort of shave the rough edges off this one. I mean, it's almost like in, I, in our culture, the worst thing possible is to be called judgmental. I mean, if you're called, if you're called as one who would judge others, that's like, wow, that's the worst, um, worst thing imaginable. And it is sinful to self-righteously judge others. So that is right. I mean, I understand that God's not opposed to that as well, but that's like the worst thing possible is to judge other people. And we sort of put that on our deities as well. We don't really want to think about a God that judges. That wouldn't be very culturally popular to have a God that judges. But the Bible is not embarrassed about that truth. The Bible in some ways leads with that truth. I found this very fascinating that in Acts 17, Paul is preaching to pagans. They're thoughtful. They are, uh, they are well-reasoned. They are philosophical. He's, he's talking on Mars Hill where there's all kinds of gods present. It might be the equivalent of a college campus today um, where there is, it, it's the halls of intellect and thought. And he is not embarrassed to say everybody will give an account to God. When he preaches the good news about Jesus, he includes it. Read Matthew, I mean, Acts 17, verses 30 to 31. We'll read this to you. Acts 17, 30 to 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked. This is what he's saying to pagans. To the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's talking about Jesus there. And here's here's what he tells these people. They have many gods. He says, you have a statue to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you about that God. And he tells them about God. And he says, this God is going to judge all of us. And the one who's going to judge is Jesus Christ on the throne. That Jesus will judge people is what he says. And he says, the proof of that is that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the good news, the gospel. So he preaches about judgment and he preaches about the gospel at the same time. Here's the picture. For some of us, we will stand before a judge who is our savior, Jesus. The judge who paid our price, the judge who took our sentence, the savior, Jesus, who, who has every reason to judge us, but because of his love for us, gave his life for us so that those of us who believe in him have our sins forgiven. And so though we come before a throne and we have sins, the judge is our savior. The judge is our savior. He is the lamb on a throne. That means he's killed and sacrificed for us. For others, they will stand before God who is just a judge and not their savior. 
because they've not believed in Jesus Christ. They've not trusted Jesus. They haven't believed that Jesus died to forgive them of their sins. They haven't believed that, as Paul says, he's been raised from the dead. He raised from the dead, defeating the power of death, defeating the power of sin. So some will just come before a judge who will judge them because they've resisted Jesus Christ. They haven't believed in Jesus Christ. They haven't trusted Jesus as their savior. They haven't followed him and trusted him alone. They haven't, as he said, repented, which means turn to Christ. So you may be here today and you say, that's me. I've never returned to Christ. I've never believed in Jesus as the one who died for my sins. I've never received his forgiveness. Then there's bad news and good news. The bad news is if you stay on that pathway, you will stand before him and give an account for your life. And and here will be the verdict. It'll be the same as for all of us, guilty, guilty. But you don't have to have that experience. You can believe in Jesus, that he died for your sins and that he resurrected to defeat the power of death and sin, to pay your price and to give you a new life, to give you a life here and now filled with knowing him and experiencing the joy of knowing your creator uh, today and the promise of eternal life to be with him forever. So this warning about judgment is not hidden in the Bible. It's not like in the closet. We just sort of bring it out uncomfortably or we shouldn't. It's it's a warning for the Christian. It's a day that's in front of us that causes us to fear the Lord. But it's also a day that we should anticipate with joy as well. Because Jesus, the one who judges us, is the one who's already paid our price. And so we are declared righteous. We are free. We are guilt-free. We are forgiven. So it'll be a glorious day of being reconciled face-to-face with our Savior and embraced by him um, as well. Um, but for those of us who don't know him, it is a day of sobriety. and a, It's a terrible day, the Bible says, for those who don't know him. But it does not have to be a terrible day. You can respond to Christ today and have your sins forgiven and be ready for that day. So here's what, back to the passage here. I said in my heart when I see all of the injustice that there's coming a day when God will make all things right. And those who are sinning against others, they will receive the just payment for their sin. And so as a Christian, even in a world that's crazy, and even with those who suffer, our hearts are broken for that. But we are able to go to bed confident at night, rest assured that God is sovereign. We do what we can, how God ever empowers us and whatever he calls us to do to alleviate the suffering of those who experience injustice, but also to alleviate the suffering eternally for those who will face God without a Savior. And we do that by communicating the good news of Jesus so that eternal suffering can be eradicated in a person's life and eternal joy in God's presence can be received instead. I'm going to go through this next passage rather, rather quickly here. Um, he goes on to talk about that death is a test from God that's intended to help us realize the shortness of life, our mortality. Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to the dust all return. So he's basically saying, I mean, is he saying that we're the same as animals? Uh, Well, not biologically. This isn't an evolutionary argument that he's making or something like that. But what he's saying is our destiny is the same, that all creatures die. That, That separates us from God. He's eternal, but all of us will die. Just like the animals die, we die. 
Says, he says in here that life is from God, that breath, he, breath is ultimately from God. So we die like the animals. And he says that God is testing that they may see themselves, that they are but, but beasts, that we must see our own mortality, that we must see what we share in common with all creatures is that we die. And the intended hope of that test is that we would get it that we would get it, that we would see there's coming a day where everyone will die. The oppressor and the oppressed will die. The rich and the poor um, will die. Everyone will be uh, equalized at death. We all have the same fate, so to speak. And then once we die, we stand before God. This is what is being communicated who will judge the righteous and the wicked. How do we know this? He asked that in verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? There's a lot of commentary debate about what that verse means. But I think he's just saying, I think he's speaking under the sun. We have to always know what's what's Ecclesiastes' perspective. Is he talking under the sun now? Or is he talking sort of above the sun? I think he's talking under the sun, saying, how do we know what happens to the spirit of man or the spirit of an animal after it dies? How do we really know? Um, I mean, there's not empirical evidence that shows us something. You can go to the bookstore and get all kinds of anecdotal stories about what happened to someone after they died. Uh, But really, there's no empirical data. Those are just somebody's stories. There's no empirical data of what happens. We need God to tell us what happens. And God, throughout Scripture, informs us that we are all, there's, it's appointed to man once to die, the Bible says, and then after that comes judgment. Or here he says there's coming a day where God will judge every act. So death leads us to consider the matter, that life is short, that we are mortal, that the passing people who are in power in this world, that is passing. Those who are oppressing others, that is passing. It's only here for a moment. And then we all stand before God. And so if we know that, if we know that our sins are forgiven, we can enjoy our lives. We can enjoy our lives under the grace of God um, and really have a meaningful enjoyment in it. And that's, he kind of closes there in 22. So there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? We kind of talked about that whole theme two weeks ago. Now, the second thing he sees, and this will be really brief compared to the first one, but the second thing he sees, first he sees injustice under the sun. The second thing he sees is oppression under the sun. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power. There was no one to comfort them. I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So he closes referring to the oppressions that we see in the planet. Looking at oppression is where he closed. If judicial injustice is one kind of oppression, now he just talks about oppression broadly. There are lots of oppressions all around us. And if we just have a below the sun, under the sun view, if we just look as if there's no God and there's no coming justice, then we despair of life. Think about the kind of oppressions that happen in our world today. Most oppressions happen, by the way, because of someone's desire for financial gain. That's usually the root of oppression. Sometimes it's power, but even there, it's usually tied to finances. 
But today we have throughout the world workers that are paid subsistent wages in foreign factories that make barely enough to even survive. They're not paid justly. They're oppressed by those who are in power. We have people today in our world that are enslaved, literally enslaved and trafficked for sex. That's oppression. We have unborn people who never see the light of day, but unborn persons that are killed in the womb. That is oppression of the weak, those who have no voice. People are discriminated against all over the world because of their race. People are discriminated against because of their gender or because of their age. That's more and more common that elderly people are oppressed. They're often vulnerable and so they're scammed. They're mistreated. We have wicked dictators throughout history that have committed acts of genocide, trying to wipe out entire populations of people. That is oppression. Women are beaten. Children are abused. Sexually molested. Taken advantage of and oppressed by those who have more strength or power or authority over them. People have their goods stolen from them. Christians are persecuted throughout the world for their faith, and many killed, martyred, because of their belief in Jesus Christ. That is oppression. There are places in the world and throughout history, this is more common than uncommon, where a few people hold all the power and all the money and all the opportunity, and the masses live at bare existence, many times starving, while some people have everything and others starve. That is oppression. And what makes it worse is that he says here, he sees that kind of oppression and sees there's no one to comfort them. That there's some people that walk through oppression alone, or there's some people that walk through oppression and have no hope. And he says, it's so bad. When I look at all the oppression in the world, it is so bad that people are isolated and lonely and experiencing these kinds of things that are so horrific that many of us cannot even imagine them in the safe world that we live in. That we can't even imagine. He says that it is so oppressive that when he thinks about it, he envies dead people. That's what he says. It'd be better to be dead because you don't have to see all the oppression in the world. He actually goes on to that. He says, better than both is he who's not even been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. Now, he's speaking under the sun there. He uses the phrase. He's talking under the sun. He's saying, if there is no God, then it is better to never be born and see or experience the horrendous oppression and suffering on this planet. But if there is a God, there is a God who is sovereign and ruling and who is just, then what he says is that one day he will judge the righteous and the wicked. There is a judgment coming where God will sort everything out. And in the meantime, we do what we can, but we ultimately trust God and his sovereignty to rule and to sort out the injustices and the oppressions of the world. So how do we respond to this passage? Well, I don't think it's the intent of this particular passage, as I mentioned, but elsewhere in the Bible, that it's clear that we should do whatever we can to alleviate the practical suffering of those who suffer and who are oppressed. And I pray that our team in Haiti will be able to do that this week, next week, that they will be able to bring some temporal relief from those who are suffer, for those who suffer. But beyond that, we are called to bring 
relief from eternal suffering, which is coming for everyone who's rejected Jesus Christ, everyone who has not believed in Jesus and trusted him for their Savior. They will have eternal torment. And so we try to bring relief there as well. Secondly, we just have to trust God to sort out everything justly. We have to live with a confidence in his sovereignty. It is the only way that life can make sense is that there's a coming justice. Why is there not immediate justice? We don't know. Here's a category that as Christians we have to be comfortable with. It is the category of mystery. If you come around a group of Christians who can explain everything that God does and can explain everything in an airtight, perfect, rational explanation that can give you reasons for everything that happens, I would say go the other direction. Because they're not acknowledging the truth of the Bible, which there is a mystery. We do not know the ways of God. And that's why he is God and I am not and you are not. So we have to be comfortable at times with the category mystery saying we don't know, but we do know some things. And we do know that he will faithfully execute justice in the end. We live with the category of faith. We live with the category of mystery. Instant justice does not always come. In the book of Acts, there's a story where a guy named Ananias and Sapphira walk into church. They lie to the leaders and God literally kills them. I mean, they literally fall over dead. That was instant justice. They they lied, they died. The sentence for lying and deception was death. Now, most of us are probably glad there's not that kind of justice going around. This would be a very empty room today, and there'd be nobody preaching for sure. So most of us are glad that's not the case. God is forbearing. God is patient to giving us an opportunity to believe in him. But we do not know why he does everything. So we have to have the category of mystery, the category of faith, the category of trust, the category of deep rooting in the sovereignty of God. Not flippant, oh, God is sovereign. We're flippant. When I'm not suffering, I can be flippant. So we don't want to be flippant about it. We want to be deep about it, that God is sovereign. And this, this is, these are lenses to look at life with. This is a worldview. This is a way to relate with life so that we don't go crazy. There's really two options. We're either complacent and don't care about suffering. I can relate to that one. Can you? I mean, that's often the case. Often I read this and go, well, I'm not depressed about everything. Well, I'm not looking at what's really going on. Or maybe no one close to me is experiencing that right now. So it's either because I'm complacent and just kind of closing my eyes and shutting my ears to the oppression in the world. That's one option. Or we look around and we're hopeless and depressed by what's going on. Or the third is we say God is good. The Bible affirms that. God is sovereign. The Bible affirms that. God is gracious. The Bible affirms that. Everything has its season and the Bible affirms that there's coming a season of his judgment. And so God, I trust you. I trust you. And I take my joy in you that you are good and faithful. The last thing we can do is to take to heart the lessons of our mortality and God's judgment. The lessons of our mortality. That's what he says. We're going to die. The lessons of our mortality and God's judgment. Here's what this passage says. We will die. We will be judged. And the only hope we have is in Jesus Christ. It's a glorious hope. It's a, he's a gift. It's a gracious hope. It's sobering, but there's this wonderful truth that he forgives us our sins if we trust in him and in him alone. Here's the message. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you'd been here the first three messages of Ecclesiastes, here was the appeal. That you will not find joy in life through chasing anything on the earth. 
Ecclesiastes, this guy, the preacher, he, he tells his story. Uh, he had more wine, women, and song. Literally, he talks about those things. He had more wine, women, and song. 700 wives, 300 women that he just slept with that weren't wives. He had 1,000 wives. He had palaces, gardens, more power than anyone where he lived. He was wiser than any king before him. He had all this stuff. And he said, it, at the end of the day, it's meaningless. And here's the message to that, uh, from that. If you're not a Christian, here's the message. You'll never find joy in life chasing stuff. You'll only find joy and meaning in meeting the God that created you and the Savior that gave his life for you, Jesus Christ. So that's a message. If you're an un, un, not a Christian, that is a message in the Bible. There's hopelessness outside of Christ. There's hope in Christ. And if you become a believer, it doesn't mean you won't have problems. But it does mean you'll have the Spirit of God living in you. You'll have the Bible guiding you. You'll have the hope of eternal life. You'll have God helping you through all the challenges you face and caring for you. You'll know your meaning and purpose and the reason you're on this planet. It's a purpose-driven kind of a call. God will show his purpose to you for your life. That's what the first three chapters, that's, that's how we've appealed to the unbeliever. If you're not a Christian here or you're not sure. Here's the appeal of this passage. It's not your life is meaningless, trust Christ. It's you're going to be judged. One's not better than the other. They're both in the Bible. But the appeal of this one is you will stand before God and give an account for your life. And you can either stand before God the judge and pay the penalty for all your sins, which is hell. Or you can believe in Jesus now and stand before the God who is the Savior. The judge who has a robe on but has bleeding hand, has marks in his hands and a pierced side, and a places in his head where a crown of thorns went into his head because he's the Savior who died for you. The Bible calls him a lamb. He was slaughtered for us. So you can come to the Jesus who loves us, the judge who loves us so much that he paid the price for our sins, and you can come and be welcomed into heaven eternally, welcomed before the Savior who gave his life for you. Both are in the Bible. Life is totally different now for those who know Jesus Christ in our heart. And our circumstances may not be always different, but our life is different. Abundant life, eternal life to, starts today if you're a believer. But then there's the sure promise, which is greater, of eternal life forever when we stand before him and receive his judgment. Doesn't guarantee if you believe in Jesus, you won't experience some oppression. You may. Doesn't guarantee that you won't have any problems, but it does guarantee this. He says a few verses earlier, God will make everything beautiful in its time. Whatever happens to us, he redeems it for our good and his glory. That is the promise. He works all things for our good. And there's the promise that he will sort it all out in the end. He will sort it all out in the end gloriously. And on that day, we will receive grace and welcome and mercy and kindness if we've believed in Jesus or we will receive justice which will be fair and open honest and penetrating and righteous and just and eternal so this calls all of us to look to that day to lift our eyes above the sun to grieve over the oppression under the sun to do what we can to trust God to bring ultimate justice and to respond ready for that day by God's grace, who extends an invitation to us to believe and be forgiven. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.com.
www.ghostofthecoast.org.